Mark chapter 10, I'm going to read, or sorry, Mark chapter 11, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Mark 11, as they approached Jerusalem, this is, this is Palm Sunday, right? And, uh, we celebrate the triumphal entry today. And uh, so this passage is taken, this uh, text describes what happened on that day. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. And, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked them, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, um, sort of to get ready for, for celebrating Palm Sunday and the Lord's triumphal entry, I want you to do something for me. Would you bring up that next slide? Do you see that slide there? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's one of the things people were shouting to each other, right? And responding, Hosanna in the highest. So I want us just to get ourselves in tune and do that. But instead of doing it with me, I'd like you to look at somebody who's sitting near you. You might have to turn around, person right in front of you, person next to you. And I would like one of you to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and the other person to respond, Hosanna in the highest. And then we're going to turn it around and do it the other way. All right? So you've got to look at a person sitting near you. All right? You may have to turn around, find somebody. Everybody find somebody. I know, you know, Jeannie's sitting way up here in this service. People are further apart from each other. But you find somebody. Look them in the eye. Okay? You got your person? Somebody start, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. <laughs> wow, this sounds like a nightmare. Come on, y'all. Let's take orders here. Person one, okay? Say it right now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Person two, Hosanna in the highest. I'll give you a C plus. <laughs> All right, but we're ready now, okay? We're ready. I don't know enough of this story to start at the beginning. So I'm going to pick a point later in the, narr in the narrative of this story, but much earlier than anything in our Gospels. So think a thousand years and some change before the birth of Jesus. There's an old man lying on a bed, and he's dying. His kids are all in the room with him. He's been sleeping fitfully, but now he rouses himself, and one by one, he speaks a word of blessing over his kids. The man's name is Jacob Israel, and his kids are the patriarchs of the Jewish people. Most of his blessings are short and pithy, like the one he speaks to Naphtali, which is only 10 words long in English. But there are two much longer blessings that he shares. 
reaching about 150 words each. One of those he reserves for his favorite son, Joseph, which we might expect, knowing Jacob. The other, though, is unexpected. It is the blessing of his son, Judah. In it, he calls Judah a lion's cub. He tells him that the king's scepter, now there's 70 people in this extended family, and they're just a family, but he tells him the king's scepter will remain with his descendants. He says that the ruler's staff will wait until he comes to whom it belongs. And then he adds something very odd for a blessing. He says, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt, to the choicest branch. What an odd thing to say. Jacob spoke that blessing more than a thousand years before Jesus, who was a descendant of Jacob through the line of Judah, made his famous entry into Jerusalem. Now, this is much too long a story to tell in 25 minutes, so I'm going to skip ahead and skip many important parts, and we're going to come to the country of Israel in AD 49, AD 29. It is a conquered nation. Uh, its autonomy was lost more than a generation ago, and the people living in Israel have known only oppression. Now, there have been freedom fighters and there have been freedom movements, but all of them have ended up in exactly the same way. They've all ended up dead. But now there's a new figure on the national stage. Jesus the Galilean. Tens of thousands of people have attended his speeches. Everyone in the north, in the Galilee, knows him. And most of the people in the south in Judea have heard of him. Most of his supporters, but not all, are up in Galilee. Most of his opponents, but not all, are down in Judea. Some hope, others fear, that he's going to follow in the footsteps of another Galilean, Judas the Galilean, the revolutionary, whose uprising was crushed by the Roman army. For the last few months, rumors about Jesus have just been flying everywhere. A little over four months ago, Jesus was in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. That did not end well. His opponents tried to kill him, but Jesus managed to escape and he crossed the Jordan. But he came back a few weeks later, not to Jerusalem itself, but to a suburb called Bethany. When he arrived, he was told that his friend Lazarus had died four days earlier. And in his most spectacular miracle yet, he raised Lazarus back to life. Now, there were many people from Jerusalem present. Jerusalem's not very far away at all. And the news spread like wildfire. And what people were saying was this. Could Messiah himself do greater deeds than this man? Might he not be the Messiah? When his opponents, men who were allied with Rome and who led Israel's puppet government, heard what he'd done, they didn't say among themselves, wow, we must have been wrong. This guy must be the real deal. What they said was, this can't go on. This cannot go on. If we don't stop him, there's going to be a revolution and it'll be disastrous. The Romans will take away what little freedom we have left. We have no choice. It's him or us. Jesus has to die. 
Jesus didn't stick around Jerusalem to see what those guys were going to do. He went back over the Jordan and he holed up in a little village on the edge of the desert. But he didn't keep his presence there secret. People from all over came to him for the next months. And when Passover rolled around four months later, he came to them. He went back to Jerusalem. Now, this is for the feast of unleavened bread. And Passover is the central component of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And how do you describe what that was like? It was like the 4th of July and Thanksgiving rolled into one. It was everyone's favorite holiday. Passover marked the anniversary of the biggest event in the nation's history, the event that turned Israel into a nation. It was their Independence Day. And by law, everyone living within so many miles of Jerusalem had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. Every year, tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. The historian Josephus says two million, but that probably is an exaggeration. Hundreds of thousands of people went to Jerusalem to celebrate together. They traveled in these massive caravans. Travel was so Difficult and dangerous people, when they traveled, they went together if possible. They traveled in massive caravans, tens of thousands of them. And everyone was happy. When the caravans entered the last stretch of road before the city gate, they would be cheered by onlookers who lined the road, just like a parade. And the people in the caravan and the people lining the road would chant well-known songs back and forth to each other. The total blast. When the day of Passover came, so the day of Passover would come later in the week of Passover, or of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When the day came, everyone, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem with their extended families and friends. Now, there were so many people that the government officially extended the city limits for Jerusalem every year at Passover. They pushed out the city twice as far as it normally was, so everyone could eat the Passover in the holy city. At that meal, they reenacted the events of that historic night of their emancipation from slavery, what we know as the Exodus. As they recalled their liberation from their ancient oppressors, how could they not think about and talk about and hope for liberation from their current oppressors. Of course they did. And because of that, Passover was always a volatile time politically. In the past, there had been massive protests and revolts at Passover and deaths. And so the Roman governor always deployed additional troops to Jerusalem to keep the peace. The military was at red alert all week long. Everywhere one looked, there were Roman soldiers, swords at their sides, spears at rest, wariness in their eyes. When the caravans heading from Galilee, so I don't know if you can picture a map of Israel in your mind, but the caravans coming from Galilee would cross to the east of the Jordan, come down the east side of the Jordan, and cross back and come back up to Jerusalem. When those caravans reached that village on the east side of the Jordan where Jesus had holed up, he joined them. In fact, he led 
the vanguard of one of those great caravans. The Gospel of Mark says that they were on their way up to Jerusalem, up because Jerusalem is literally up. It's 2,600 vertical feet higher than Jericho, which they passed through. With Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Why were the disciples astonished? They were astonished at the change that seemed to have come over Jesus. Always prior to this, Jesus avoided the spotlight. He did miracles. He took people off in secret. Uh, Though the apostles believed that he was the long-promised Messiah, the liberator, he ordered them not to say so. Yes, you're right, but don't tell anybody. And whenever anyone called him the Messiah, he told them to be quiet. But now things had changed. In Jericho, a man called him the son of David, and that's a messianic title. And Jesus didn't tell him to be quiet. And he seemed to them to have grown in stature. There was a determination about him that one sees in a commander leading his men into battle. His stride was long, his every move certain, and his eyes were full of fire. The disciples were astonished, but the crowds that followed him were afraid. They were wondering if Jesus really was marching on Jerusalem. They were remembering what happened to that other Galilean, Judas the Galilean, and the people who followed him. What if the Roman troops came out to meet them? There would be a slaughter. And yet they still followed. The strength of Jesus' personality held them like glue. The distance from Jericho to Jerusalem is 18 miles. 18 miles over that elevation gain of 2,600 feet. The road runs to the east of the city. It climbs up the Mount of Olives. There were and there still are uh, olive trees, groves of olive trees on the side of the Mount of Olives. And then the road turns sharply and descends into the city, enters the gate just outside the temple. On the top of the Mount of Olives, there is a little village called Bethany. It's a kind of suburb, about one and a half miles from the city. So if you want to think about how far that is, if, if we were Bethany, you would reach Jerusalem before you reached Lock, or Old 27. Okay, That's how close this was. It was in this little village that Jesus' good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, lived. And here, or in the next little village called Bethphage, which was really part of Jerusalem proper, it was inside the city limits, here Jesus had a donkey waiting for him. And not just a donkey, but a donkey's foal, a young colt that had never been ridden. When they were still a couple of miles from Bethany, Jesus sent two of his people ahead with detailed instructions about where to find the colt. He was intending to ride it that last mile or so down the road leading to the city gate, the road that was lined with well-wishers chanting those famous songs back and forth with the people in the caravans. Jesus' idea to ride a donkey's colt into the city wasn't something that he came up with on the spur of the moment. This was well-planned and highly symbolic Now remember Jacob's blessing. Remember that prophecy. He, the ruler from the line of Judah, who was to come, will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt, 
to the choicest branch. That was in Jesus' mind, but that's not all. See, Jesus was thinking of something the prophet Zechariah, one of the late prophets, had written. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jews who saw Jesus riding a donkey's colt into Jerusalem would, if they stopped to think about it, get the imagery. They would understand. But Roman soldiers who were watching every move for signs of revolt wouldn't think twice about a guy riding a donkey into the city. His disciples who were at the front of the caravan see that Jesus intends to ride the donkey, so they take their jackets off and they lay them over the colt's back and they lay them on the road in front of him. That too is no accident. It's just what Jehu's followers did when long before they entered Israel's capital city and declared him king. At this point, the excitement on the road going down the Mount of Olives is palpable. It's like the old prophecies are being fulfilled right before people's eyes. When the Galileans who had arrived earlier in the week and were waiting for their friends in this caravan saw what was happening, they quickly cut down palm branches. This is actually something from Leviticus. And they lined the roads with them and they waved them and they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a prayer. It became used as a kind of a greeting, but it's a prayer and it means save. God save us. The quote about the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord is from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm about the one who would come from the line of David, who himself was from the line of Judah. Remember old Jacob's blessing of Judah until he comes to whom it, the ruler's staff, belongs. When folks started shouting out these messianic praises or revolutionary slogans, depending on your point of view, with armed Roman soldiers everywhere you looked, the people in the crowd who weren't Jesus' followers panicked. These imbeciles are going to get us all killed. It's not like those Roman soldiers are going to stop to ask who is in and who is out of the resistance movement. So they came to Jesus and they said, teacher, get your disciples under control. But Jesus, who remember had silenced every messianic whisper for the past three years, now says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. Excitement is at fever pitch. The Galileans in the caravan and the ones lining the road are shouting these messianic praises back and forth like I had you do a few moments ago. Now, it won't be long before the Roman soldiers take notice of this. But then something totally unexpected happens. Poised on this hill, overlooking the city, with people shouting and excitement spreading, Jesus does the last thing anyone would expect. He stops and he cries. He bursts into tears. In the moment of this triumph, he weeps. 
And he weeps because in his mind's eye, he sees what no one else in that crowd can see. The devastation that is coming on these people. Young and old, women and men, children and babies. He sees it and it breaks his heart. That is not what people were expecting. And after that moment, we read nothing more of raucous celebrations. When Jesus reaches the city, he gives the donkey to someone who will take it back home. Or perhaps he tethers it to a branch. And he goes into the city and into the temple. Now, if you think of worldwide Judaism, and Judaism was worldwide at this time. If you think of it as a body, the temple is its heart. Its lifeblood flows from here. Jesus goes into the the temple like a cardiologist doing a heart cath, and he carefully examines it, and he finds the same abuses that he put a stop to several years before. But it's, it's late. Remember, they've come from Jericho 18 miles away, and by now it's probably nearly dark. And so he leaves the city and returns to his friends in Bethany. The next morning he comes back, and he comes back to the temple, and this time he does not leave. He takes over. He takes over the temple. He asserts himself as the Lord of the temple, Lord of the heart of Judaism. He throws people out, and he positions himself so that no one can get in to sell merchandise without him seeing it. And doing that, he signs his own death warrant. And he knows it. This is a major disruption. Open heart surgery on the heart of Jerusalem. He publicly accuses Israel's leaders of being thieves. And then the leaders of the government, who also lead the temple, see this as an assault on their authority. And they immediately set in motion Jesus' arrest and execution. Those men may not have been committed to God, but they were steadfastly committed to their position and their privilege. They wouldn't let God himself take those things away without a fight. This is where we're going to leave the story for now. On Thursday, we'll pick it back up again and tell the story of that night, the night Jesus was betrayed. And we'll tell it from the perspective of the disciples and share in the meal they shared in. And then on Sunday, Easter Sunday, we'll finish the story. The best is yet to come. But before we go, I want you to think about the courage of Jesus. As William Barclay once wrote, in this world there are two kinds of courage. There's the courage of the moment, when a man without thinking reacts to some dangerous and menacing situation and becomes a hero almost before he's noticed it. And then there's the courage of the man who can see the terrible thing on the distant horizon and who could quite easily escape it if he wished and yet goes steadily and flexibly on. We see that kind of courage here. 
In the Iliad, Achilles' mother tells him that if he goes into battle, he will certainly die. And he answers her, Nevertheless, I'm for going on. The, the great reformer, William Tyndall, whose translation of the Bible in English was translation after translation. So he translated parts of the Old Testament, he translated parts of the New Testament, and every time he did it, the authorities burned his translations. And Tyndall said, I doubt not that they will burn me too. And they did. Eight years later, he saw it coming, but he went on. Archbishop Romero said, tell the people, the people that he loved, that if they succeed in killing me, that I forgive and bless those who do it. They succeeded as he knew they would, but he went on. But nothing matches the courage of Jesus. He saw what was coming long before this day. He knew where this trip to Jerusalem would end on a hill called Calvary and a cross. He knew his enemies would rejoice. He knew his friends would grieve. He knew that he would be tortured and killed in the most horrendous manner. And he hated the thought of it. He wanted desperately to avoid it. But still he went on. Why? Why, if he wanted to avoid it and could avoid it, didn't he avoid it? Why does anyone do anything they want so desperately to avoid? There's only one reason, because he wants something even more. What did Jesus want so badly that he endured the cross? Look at that person that I had you look at earlier today when we did that exchange. Look right in that person's eyes right now. Do it. Don't look at me. Look at them. All right, you're looking at them. There is what he wanted. He wanted him. He wanted her. He wanted you. He did this for you. He died an appalling death because he wanted you to have an eternal life. That's the kind of person he is. And he's revealed to us the kind of God that we have. And I'm telling you, you can give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Now let's pray. God, we too see bad things coming on sometimes. Usually things we can't avoid. Sickness, illness, cancer, death. But you, Lord Jesus, you could have avoided this and you didn't. And we owe you everything for it and we confess that. You are the one who was to come and who is to come. And by the grace of God, we are your people. Thank you. Amen.